this, we've got two great opportunities. Uh, Truth Project and coming up, Truth Project and Secret Church. And uh, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be, over the next four weeks, looking at the book of Jonah. And so, so please turn to, turn to Jonah chapter 1. <clears throat> and what, what we're going to do, in, this is a, a four-chapter book in the Minor Prophets. And uh, Jonah is always an extremely relevant book, and I think it's probably very relevant for us, for us t- today. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news after Easter, but uh, some pretty amazing things happened following Easter, particularly looking at the upsurge in violence against followers of Christ. Uh, on Easter Sunday in Lahore, Pakistan, a group gathered at a park, and while they were gathered there, they were anticipating worship, and then they were going to have a, a time with their families. While they were gathered there, there were some suicide bombers who came in and detonated a massive explosion, killing over 70 believers, injuring 300 more, 60 lay critically injured in a burn center in Pakistan. The majority of people who were affected were women and children. Tragedy. And yet that event is the tip of the iceberg of what's happened around the world since Easter, since this past Easter. In Yemen, some ISIS gunmen went into an elderly care center, and while they were in that care center, funded by the organization founded by Mother Teresa, they went into that care center and they began to indiscriminately shoot at people who were in that care center. These are aged people, these are elderly people who wouldn't fight back, who couldn't fight back, and they were just indiscriminately killed. Around the same time, uh, ISIS got this guy, Father Thomas Uzhanalil, and uh, they grabbed him, they held him for three weeks, and then they crucified him on Good Friday. Now, you, you look at the, uh, these, these three, and, and I think uh, most of us get a bit of horror fatigue when we look at these sorts of examples. Tip of the iceberg. We get horror fatigue. We, 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 okay, I know this is going on. I don't want to hear more about these kinds of things. And the trend that I see among Christians in America is that there's a growing anger and even a hatred toward those people who are perpetrating those kinds of acts. So we see growing fear, and then secondly, growing anger, and then secondly, a growing fear that people in the West aren't doing anything about it. And when fear and anger become paramount in our emotions, that becomes a problem. And if you've ever looked at our world and think, yeah, I'm, I'm a little fearful this could happen here, and I'm angry toward the people who are doing this. If you've ever felt those twin emotions of fear and anger, welcome to the world of Jonah. Because this is exactly the kind of thing that Jonah encountered in his day. 
And Jonah, the Assyrians, were the terrorists of the ancient world, terrorists in every sense of the word. They were like ISIS, doing horrible things and instilling fear into the hearts of their neighbors. Moreover, in Jonah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel was very weak, and the northern kingdom was about ready to encounter God's judgment, and the people thought, all right, are we going to be overrun by the terrorists who were there in Assyria, in the capital city of Nineveh? And the emotions of every Israelite in the northern kingdom are similar to the emotions that people have in the West today. I don't like those people. I don't like what they're doing. And I'm afraid that I can't do anything about it. That's Jonah. That's Jonah's, that's Jonah's world. And yet, God calls Jonah to reach the people of Nineveh. God had given a great commission. You think, wait, the great commission is in the New Testament. Well, God gave a great commission in the Old Testament to Abraham. And what God told Abraham was this, I want you to be a blessing. Israel is to be a missionary nation. You were to go into the world and invite people to the knowledge of the true God, the God of the universe. Well, God also gave to the disciples a great commission as well. Jonah was resistant to the Great Commission in the Old Testament, and there are many followers of Jesus who, when it comes to looking out at this troubled world, are resistant to the New Testament Great Commission as well. Now, as we plunge into the book of Jonah over the next, uh, next month, my desire is that you would confront your Jonah fear and you would confront your Jonah anger as you look around the world and adopt a different heart for the nations. And I have a huge plea as I go through this series, as actually as Josh and I go through the series. I don't want you to interpret anything that we say in this series as an endorsement of any political uh, policy. Uh, I know it's a lot of pastors, you know, will sneak in in a passive-aggressive way their pet political ideas. We are not going to do that in this series. Now, there will be times this year where I will do a short series on how a Christian should think about stewarding his vote, but we're not going to talk politics in this series. In this series, all I want to do is unfold for you, and all Josh and I are going to do is unfold for you God's heart for the nations in a world that is beset by danger and by, by terrorism. And the key point is this, is that God has commanded us to seek first His kingdom. And that means we nurture a heart for every ethnic group around the globe because God, God loves them. Jonah uh, chapter 1 has three scenes. Scene 1 is Jonah running. Scene 2 is Jonah sleeping. And scene three is Jonah swimming, except Jonah can't swim. So his flailing in the sea is quite brief. We start off with Jonah running. And in Jonah chapter one, verse one, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. 
for their evil has come up before me. But, and when we read this, we should be really surprised, but Jonah rose to flee. Now, if it weren't for one other verse in the Old Testament, we wouldn't know a whole lot about Jonah, but in 1 Kings 14.25, it says, Jeroboam restored the borders of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Well, what we learn is about Jonah is that, number one, he was a true prophet of God, and they were very rare in the northern kingdom back in those days. We learn, secondly, that he's a good prophet because he's described as a servant. Servant is not given to many people in the Old Testament. Jonah has the term servant applied to his service to the Lord, so we know that he's a, he's a good prophet. We know something now about the times in which he lived, the times of Jeroboam. These were awful times in Israel. When Jonah uh, served King Jeroboam II, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. The kingdom of the north was called Israel. It had ten tribes, and its capital was Samaria. The kingdom of the south was called Judah. It had two tribes. And these two regions did not like each other at all. It was a little bit like the north and the south on the eve of the Civil War. They did not like each other. They were not happy with what the other was, was doing. And the, that's important because the kingdom of Israel falls. And so Jonah was read in the southern kingdom. And when the people in the southern kingdom would open up the book of Judah and they would read it and it would say, Jonah, they would roll their eyes in contempt because he was part of that northern tribe whom they did not like. So Jonah was not well-liked in the southern part where he was mostly read. So what did God ask Jonah to do? I can imagine that Jonah is worshiping one day, worshiping the Lord. Lord, you're awesome. You're, you're great. Lord, I love you. And all of a sudden, God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And his jaw, his jaw drops. Of all places in the world, this is not where Jonah anticipated going. Then God says, cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Why, why is this so shocking? Well, it's shocking because Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, is located on the Tigris River. It's now modern-day Iraq. It's near the city of Mosul. These names are, are you know, knowledgeable to a lot of us because we, we listen to, to the news. It occupied about 1,800 acres, or if you're going to go throughout the city, a three-day's walk. It was a big city. If you wanted to go do Nineveh as a tourist, it would take you three days to walk throughout that city. And Assyria was the arch rival of Israel, and, and they were literally terrorists. I said that before, but I want you to notice a relief carving in which the Assyrians are impaling their enemies, driving a stake through their stomachs while they're still alive so that their enemies will go into a place and see what the Syrians do. 
Nobody wanted to go to Assyria. Now, could you imagine Jonah thinking, are you kidding? I'm going to this place where they impale their enemies alive? I don't want to go there. Assyrians were the ones who actually invented crucifixion. Most Assyrian art depicts terrible things, uh, and, and they, they glorified terrorism. What made Jonah's hair really stand on end was this. God had already prophesied through Amos and Hosea that the Assyrians were going to destroy Israel, and he's thinking, okay, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to preach to them. They're going to respond. They're going to get stronger. We're going to get weaker, and I'm going to be the guy who destroys my nation. I don't want to be that, I don't want to be that guy. So he runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction. Nineveh is north and east. Jonah goes south and west. He heads first to Joppa. Joppa is a seacoast sea town. And from Joppa, he gets a boat bound for Tarshish. Now look at the map and look at how far away Tarshish is. Nineveh is like an easy trip compared to going to Tarshish. Now, why Tarshish? Because Tarshish is the one city in the Bible where the Bible actually says people have never heard of God. Isaiah 66, 19, so remote and distant, nobody had ever heard or seen God or ever heard of His glory. He says, I, that's the place I want to go. I want to go as far away from God as I possibly can be, like that place where nobody has ever heard of Him or His name. All right, so why the urgency? Was he afraid of being killed? Mm, maybe. Was he afraid he might fall victim to torture? Mm, possibly. Was he afraid of death? Well, maybe. But that wasn't the bad thing. The bad thing was, I'm going to be the guy who causes my nation to be destroyed. And everybody will know Jonah. Jonah was the one that caused our nation would fail. And so Jonah says this at the end. Jonah 4, verse 2. Jonah said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I know that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. They're probably going to repent, those nasty Assyrians, those people that I hate, those terrorists. They might even come to know the true God. I don't want that. I don't want that. So Jonah runs. Now, here's the first thing that we, we see. God loves the nations. He loves the nations. He's committed to reaching every ethnic group around the world. He's committed to transforming them into the image of His Son. But here's the deal. He is committed to sending you. He wants to send you. He wants to send you. He wants you to have a heart for the nations. So I just want to ask you, if you've, ever, if you've ever fallen into the pathway, the footsteps of Jonah, have you ever said, God, I do care about people who are like me. I do. Um, but I just don't really care about those people who, who aren't like me. The bad people. I don't care about the bad people. Good people I, I like, not the bad people. And besides, why do you let those bad people keep doing bad things? I just want to be safe. And I'm mad that my safety may be hindered because those bad people do what they do. And so, rather than having a heart for the nations, 
We have a heart that is hardened against the nations. If that's you, welcome to the world of Jonah. That's a Jonah heart. A heart that says, I'd rather have my safety than to see the kingdom of God advance. So maybe you've run in exactly the same way that Jonah did. Maybe you have somebody in your life that you have had such a bad relationship with, you think, I don't care if they come to Christ, if they don't come to Christ, I don't care if they ever see, I have no care in the world for this person. Maybe you've, you're like Jonah in, in that way. You just want them out of your life. Or maybe you've, you're, you've somebody of a different ethnic group, and you say, you know, I know I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't harbor this ethnic angst against this other group, but I kind of do. That's Jonah. Or maybe it's uh, an ex-friend, ex-husband, ex-spouse, ex-business partner, and you think, I just, I know I shouldn't hate them, but I have emotions of hatred toward this person. I don't care if they come to Christ or not. Have you ever felt that? Welcome to the world of Jonah. Or maybe you're, you're like Jonah in a slightly different way. Maybe it's not that you, you don't like these people out here, but maybe you've endured so much pain on the inside that the needs of people aren't even on your radar screen. Maybe the problem is that you've gone through terrible personal pain, a setback, a failure, and you think, I, I, I don't care about people out there who need Christ. I'm just trying to preserve myself and make sure that I survive just another day. If that's you, welcome to the world of Jonah. Jonah had come to a place in his life where he didn't care about the needs of people because his own personal self-orientation took precedence over everything else. That's Jonah. I just have to say, there's not a person in this room who has not at some point in time had a Jonah heart. I have you have. And the important thing when we notice that is to say, oh my gosh, I have a Jonah heart, a heart that is hardened toward people who need him. That's scene one. Scene two, scene one is, is Jonah running. Scene two is Jonah sleeping on a ship in a storm on the sea. Now, Scene one tells us why he ran. Scene two tells us what he did when he ran. And at this point, Jonah is in full defiance against God. And this picture gives us a great picture of what happens to us any time we run from God. But, the, but the, specific, the specific instance here is he's running against God's heart for the nations. And so we see eight things that take place when we run from God. Eight common things that take place when we run from God. Number one, when we run from God, we plunge into denial. We forget that actions have consequences. We just run. And I'll give you a preview to this of what's, going, what's coming. Everything in this chapter responds to God. Everything. The wind responds to God. The waves respond to God. The fish responds to God. Even the polytheistic sailors on the ship they respond to God. Everybody responds to God except for one person, the prophet of God, Jonah, the one who should have responded to God. 
He is the one who's not responding to God. Why? Because he's in denial. He's in denial about God's love for the nations. He's in denial about his now sin against the God of the universe. And let me tell you what, what denial is. Denial is seeing a slice of reality that is extremely painful. And then we split that reality off from our consciousness and we pretend that that reality does not exist. God's heart for the nations was very painful for Jonah. It was painful for Jonah to say to himself, I'm a prophet. I don't like those terrorists, those Assyrians. I don't like them, and so I'm running the other way. That was painful for Jonah to have to admit what was true about God and true about him, and so he runs. And anytime you and I run from God, we are in a place of denial where we're splitting a painful reality off from our life, and we're fleeing in a different direction. Here's the second thing about running. People in denial pay a price. There's a terrible downward slide into depression. Notice how many times in this chapter the word down is used. If you've got a Bible, you might even want to circle these. Verse 3, uh, <clears throat> he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Wait, is the Tarshish really away from the presence of the Lord? No, <laughs> but, he, but he thinks it is, okay? He's going down. Jonah goes down below into the hold of the ship. Verse 17, Jonah goes down into the water. Now, when this was written, you, can, you, can, you better believe that he's consciously using the re repetition of the word down to make a point. And the point is, when you flee from God, you are going into a downward place, a downward cycle. You're descending into an abyss of addiction, depression, discouragement, shame. Notice, too, that Jonah paid a price for his slide down into depression. He paid his own fare. So here, here we think, you know, sin's going to be great. I'm going to find relief. And then we find that it's a downward cycle into pain, and you're paying a price now for the sin that you've committed. I think one of the great lies of Satan is you can run. There's no consequences. You can flee from God. No problem. I can do this thing. I can, I can stay in control. Jonah's going into a downward cycle away from the presence of the Lord. Here's another thing about people who are running from God. We drag others into our dysfunction and into our pain. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the seas so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and each man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten its load. Can, I just want you to imagine the scene. Imagine that they're on, they're on this ship, and they see storm clouds off on the horizon. These guys are expert seamen, and when they see these storm clouds, they realize they're in trouble. These storm clouds come, this front comes, and the ship begins to, you know, they shorten the sails a little bit, and then the seas begin to churn and get choppy, and pretty soon they're in a full-blown, massive storm. Now, if you're a sailor who has experienced storms, uh, you know that you can weather a lot of different storms. 
These guys apparently thought they could weather the storm, but when the ship was about to break up, then they became afraid. In other words, these guys are not the kind of people who normally become afraid, but this storm caused them to become afraid. And you wonder, do you feel sorry for these guys? They picked up the wrong guy in Joppa. I mean, it's, it's Jonah's presence on this ship that's the problem. That's why the storm is there. And they cast off the cargo. And I want to camp on that for a moment. I mean, how many times is a captain going to tell his crew to, to jettison the cargo? I mean, it's got to be like, like, this is it. It's either the cargo or our lives. Somebody's going to lose a lot of money. There, there is a merchant that's going to go bankrupt. There is a shipper, an, an owner of a ship that's going to go bankrupt. I mean, this is a dire consequence. They're losing money. So here's what we need to remember when we run from God. Others always pay a price along with us. Sometimes we're tempted to think, you know, I can do this sin. Nobody, nobody's going to get hurt. No problem at all. Believe me, somebody's going to get hurt. And the question is, how much is my sin going to cost those who love me? How much is my sin going to cost my kids, my parents, my spouse, my friends? When we run from God, we always drag other people into our dysfunction and our change. Notice something else. People who run often experience a temporary form of peace. Just think about Jonah. Jonah buys the ticket, goes into the ship, goes down into his stateroom. There in his stateroom, he locks the door. Ah, I'm, I'm running from God. I'm, what a relief to know that I've run from God. He locks the stateroom door, puts the no, do not disturb sign out in, in front, doesn't want room service at all. And he lies out in his bed. He promptly falls asleep. What's going on? It's a temporary form of peace. There's a lot of people who run from God who experience and encounter a temporary form of peace. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm in the early phases of my running, and it doesn't feel like anything bad's going to happen, maybe ever. And I'm just reveling in the peace of finally be, being away, away from God. Here's something else that happens uh, <clears throat> when we run from God. When we run from God, unbelievers often act more like believers when we're running from God. Unbelievers often act more like believers. So verse 6, the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. The captain's attitude is, look, we're, we're doing our jobs. We're praying. Why aren't you praying? Get up. Come on, pray with us. I find it interesting that these polytheistic unbelievers appear, at least at this point, to be more spiritual than this guy who's the true prophet of God, who's even called a servant of God in the book of Second, Thing, Second Kings. They're praying. It's a misguided dependence upon misguided deities, but nevertheless, they're trying to manifest some sort of spirituality. They move from prayer to casting lots. The lot falls to Jonah. They interrogate Jonah. On what account has this calamity struck us, they say. What is your occupation? Where are you from? What's your country? What people uh, are you? So Jonah now has to tell the truth. Uh, he says, I am a Hebrew, 
and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. Jonah gives God's name, Yahweh. Um, that's the name that means I am. In other words, now the unbeliever, these polytheistic unbelievers are realizing, oh my gosh, this guy worships the high God, the big God, the great God. We worship polytheistic deities. He worships the God of heaven and earth. And now they're extremely angry at Jonah because Jonah has offended the high God, the biggest God, the ultimate God. And I want you to notice the integrity of these sailors. Verse 11, they say to him, what should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this storm has come upon you. Notice they don't immediately throw him over. So these guys are acting more with more integrity in some ways than Jonah is. Now they begin to seek Jonah's God. So verse 14, this is an expanded translation. They called upon Yahweh, the Lord, and said, we earnestly pray, O Yahweh, do not let us perish on, a, on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Yahweh, have done as you pleased. That sounds like a very sincere prayer to the God of the universe, stated from sailors who seem to have some integrity to them. They're acting more like a believer than the believer is who is running. Here's another thing. When people who run are, are willing to be reckless with their lives. See this in, in verse 12. The sailors said, what, what should we do? Jonah said, throw me in. Like, I think Jonah realizes, I'm, I am, I'm willing to die. I'm going to die if they throw me in. He's being reckless with his life. You remember how Jonah, in chapter 4, observes this massive revival that sweeps through Nineveh, and Jonah's distraught. What does Jonah say to God? Lord, just let me die. Let me die. He's running, and he's reckless with his life. And sometimes people who run are reckless with their lives. Here's what's amazing. You know, some people who run can still bear fruit. They can still bear fruit in, in their life. Um, verse 9, Jonah gives the barest explanation of his belief. The barest explanation. I mean, it's, it's just so incredibly minimal. And yet, uh, what do the sailors do? Verse 16, then the, mere, the, the men feared the Lord Yahweh. And again, they're using the name of God, the specific name of God. They feared the Lord of God, Yahweh, greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. It almost, it almost seems as if these guys, in an emergency, became believers in Yahweh, the true God. Here's the final thing we see about people who run. Um, they steadfastly resist prayer. Do you, do you see that everybody is praying except Jonah? Everybody's responding to God except Jonah. And Jonah's not praying. Jonah doesn't want to pray. He's in the process of, of fleeing. Now, why do I highlight these eight? Jonah is specifically running away from God's commission to go to Nineveh. Now, what does that mean for you and I? Look, you and I have got a general commission. That general commission is the commission that says, make disciples 
of all nations. And God expects us to take that commission seriously. Every follower of Jesus Christ has that commission. Jesus does not exempt anybody. He doesn't say, oh, look, you know what? You don't have to do that. That's okay. You're, you're, you're exempt from that. Every follower of Jesus has a general commission. Make disciples of all ethnic groups. Now, among many believers, God will convict you about a particular ethnic group that you should go meet. It may be, it may be somebody down the block. It may be somebody from a different ethnic background uh, in your office. It may be that God says, I want you to go on a short-term mission trip someplace. And what I would say is this, if God lays an ethnic group on your heart, don't resist it. Begin with prayer. Begin with prayer and see what God does with your initial prayer. Let's move to the third section of the story, and that is Jonah in the sea. Jonah is, first he is running, then he is sleeping, and now he is swimming. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Let's think about this from the sailor's, from, from Jonah's perspective. The sailors exercise their final option, which is execution. A sailor picks up his feet, one sailor picks up his hands, they go back and forth, they swing him, and they swing him into the, into the sea, stormy sea. And Jonah plunges into the sea. Now, Jonah was on his high school swim team, and Jonah uh, tried out for the Olympics. He was a really, really good swimmer, and he could tread water for hours. No, 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 no. Jonah was from a small city 19 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. He had no reason to learn how to swim. Jonah was not a swimmer. So when Jonah is thrown into the sea, he splashes, he panics, and he goes deep, deeper and deeper into the sea. Nevertheless, God had prepared a fish. Now, if you have a lot of grain that's being thrown overboard, and they had a lot of grain that was being thrown overboard, you're going to have a lot of fish following your ship as more and more grain comes overboard. And the fish are seeing things, you know, going into the sea, and they don't distinguish going, hmm, grain man. They don't distinguish between that. They see stuff going into the sea, and they gobble it up. And so the fish juts out from under the ship and gobbles up this big mass, which was Jonah. Jonah slips through the jaws of the fish. He slides down the fish's throat like a raw oyster. We don't know what kind of fish this is. Um, but uh, here's an example of a really big fish with a really big mouth. Could it be a fish like this? Here's an example of a grouper off of Cuba, and I saw a video this week of a very large grouper basically swallowing a four-and-a-half-foot shark hole. He slurps him up, and he juts away with such speed, it was just incredible. Some people wonder if this was a grouper. Uh, some people wonder if it was a whale shark. Whale sharks are huge, and there was a guy 
who was filming a whale shark who about became a Jonah. Here's a guy who uh, lived to tell about his, his experience with a whale, sh- with, with a whale shark. That thing's, that thing's massive. Now, the miracle is not that Jonah got swallowed by a fish. That, that could you know, happen. The miracle is that he was not digested by the fish during the time that he was in the belly of the fish. It's a miracle that he could, he could, he could breathe <laughs> and not be overcome by the, by the stench of the, of, the, uh, of the stuff in his stomach. Um, that's, that's the miracle. And Jonah there is now sitting in the belly of the fish, uh, and he, he waits. He waits. Now, if you're Jonah and you're waiting, you know, wh- what, what happens to you in that enclosed place? What happens in that enclosed place is that you become desperate for God. Desperate for God. Look, I believe that this really did, did take place. I believe it took place. But I also believe that this is an incredible picture that was appropriate to Jonah's day and it's appropriate to our day. Based upon ancient mythology, the thing that everybody was terrified of was the great sea monster of the deep because it was a sign of judgment. And so the fact that Jonah is sitting in a big fish, Jonah would immediately interpret this, oh my goodness, I have been swallowed by the sea monster of the deep in a churning stormy sea, and now I am being judged. And what would Jonah want as the object of judgment? God, give me mercy. God, I beg you for grace. The very things he did not want the people in Nineveh to have are the things that he's begging God for in the belly of the fish. So, um, my son comes to me years ago and he says, Dad, I'm going on a mission trip to North Africa. Okay. He comes back from the mission trip and he says, you know what? Uh, I think God is calling me to be a full-time permanent missionary because I want to reach people who are Muslim for Christ. Oh, okay. See, that was different than when I was growing up because when I was growing up, Muslim missionaries to Muslim lands, you know, might have led six people to Christ and 40 years. And Jared comes back from the mission trip and he says, um, I, I prayed with eight young Muslim men to receive Christ. I said, seriously? I said, like, that's astounding. He said, uh, they were so hungry and so open. I don't, you know, that, it, just, it just happened. And so I, I read everything I can just so that I can know how to support my son who's there. And, you know, what I discover from people who were Muslim, and now they've come to Christ, and now they're called Muslim background believers, what I discovered was 
that there is this intense yearning inside their, their heart for something more. Allah does not cut it. Allah does not fill the gaping hole in their soul. The prayers that they pray, they're rote prayers. They're not personal prayers. They don't fill the, the yawning, gaping hole in the soul. And so many people who are from Muslim background have said, have said, before I came to Christ, I just, I wanted to know God, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. Then I had a vision, or I had a dream, or somebody came and shared with me, I've got a New Testament I can give you. Are you kidding me? A New Testament? Yeah, I, I want that New Testament. I'll take that. And all over the Muslim world today, there are people who are, who are crying out, crying out for God. Now, I want you to think about Acts 1-8 for a second, because, because think about where our world is. Acts 1-8 is a strategy and a prophecy. You shall receive power is a promise. You shall be my witness is a command with a prediction. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, that's a strategy. But these three spheres also contain a prophecy. It will take place. Where is the church growing fastest today? In the darkest area. It's growing fastest in what we call the 1040 window from West Africa to Indonesia. Since 9-11, I've said this before, there have been more than 69 mass movements from Islam to Christianity. So if you think about a biblical worldview for the nations, you can look at the news and become scared and afraid, and humanly speaking, you should be, because the reality of Assyria for Israel was very real. The, the reality of ISIS for the West is very real. But if that's all that you see, you don't capture the heart of God. Because in that area right there, there are men and women, there are boys and girls who are on their knees, and they're saying, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. God, show me yourself. I mean, I've read so much about, so many stories about this, I'm amazed at the consistency of those stories of people in a family who say, my family was all deeply committed, and I was saying, God, show me something more. Or their name was drawn to the name of Isa, Jesus, in the Quran. Wonder what that guy's like. Wonder who he is. So I think it's important to um, recognize that God's heart for the nations is a heart that says, I am going to send you. I'm going to send you to reach the nations. So my question for you this morning is simply this. Do you have a Jonah heart? Do you have a Jonah heart? It is really easy to have a Jonah heart. Sometimes I read the stories of, of what victims of terrorist attacks tell me and my Jonah heart starts to ramp up, and I start feeling feelings that concern me. And then I have to confess those and say, Lord, I confess my Jonah heart to you. Help me fall in love with those 
people whom you are working so powerfully in right now. The church is growing fastest in the place where it's most persecuted around the world. So my encouragement to you is that you and I, we would both do as we enter into this book of Jonah, some self-confrontation. How do we deal with our Jonah heart? And how can we repent of that Jonah heart and truly gain a hunger for the nations of the world? Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to thank you, Lord, that we um, who know you have received astonishing blessings. Lord, I just want to pray that, you, that, that we who know you, Lord, would be captivated by your love for the nations. Revelation 5 verse 9 tells us that the nations of the world will be gathered around the throne and men from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, men and women of all these different backgrounds, Lord, will be worshiping the triune God. Lord, may we be instruments in your hand that speak forth the goodness and the greatness of the one who can fill their hearts and their souls with meaning and reality and love. Lord, help us be the instruments that show forth the reality of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.